Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Coming up on today's show, Inside an Alberta ICU, we've heard all the reports about how dire things are. We'll talk with an intensive care doctor, drinking water on First Nations, a discussion we keep having, we keep hearing about. We'll talk with somebody who was on a government advisory panel way back in 2006. What came up then and why didn't it happen? And Dr. Hinshaw making news today with her statement that we went too fast and too far. What is the role of a chief medical officer of health? We know the situation in our healthcare system right now is once again at that point, use the word, whatever word you want, disaster, catastrophe, crisis, near crisis, whatever the case may be. We know we have more uh, COVID patients in ICU than we ever have before. We're into our fourth wave. We now have, I mean, it changes hour by an hour, right? So let's call it 200. It's been above 200. It's been slightly below 200, but 200 is fair. Uh, which is more than we have ever seen before in the ICUs in this province before. And uh, you saw the case counts from the weekend. They just continue to go up. We're not plateauing. We're not dropping. We are continuing to have patients arrive in hospital and ultimately in the ICU. It's it's a tough spot to be in. Uh, I don't know how things get turned around, if things get turned around. So let's get an inside look at what's going on in an ICU in our province right now. We have joining us Dr. Rayanne Chowdhury who is an ICU doc at the Royal Alec Hospital in Edmonton. Um, Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it as well. So just tell us, what is it like inside an ICU in Alberta right now? I mean, we hear all these reports, but you're there. You're on the front lines each and every day. What's it like? It's so much busier than it's ever been. I was on during Christmas um, and after during our third wave, and I remember thinking at that time, I was like, well, if we go down this path, the, this healthcare system is going to collapse. And then, you know, the government made uh, necessary decisions at that time. Uh, and th- things were locked down and then things quickly improved. And I remember in the summertime, th- things were pretty decent. And it, this one caught me off guard as well. But starting in August, there's just been every week an increase in the number of ICU patients. And it's just getting to the point where the ICU is probably at a breaking point. Right, we can increase the number of ventilators and we can increase the number of beds, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to increase the number of people who can actually take care of these patients. So that includes the ICU nurses, the ICU respiratory therapists, and and the ICU doctors. Um, and the other thing that really scared me, I was on last week at nighttime. Um, I think we're taking care of a lot more people in the hospital who should be in intensive care who we can't take to the intensive care because we don't have space, right? That's what scares me, is that people that in any other time, even in prior waves, they're on so much oxygen that I would think, you know what, this person deserves an ICU bed so we can watch them more closely. Yeah. They're not getting that, right? And that includes COVID and non-COVID patients. Everyone's paying the price here. Um, Doctor, we know that the ICU has been expanded by quite a bit over the last, I guess it's two weeks now. Is there more capacity? As you say, 
you know, adding a bed or a ventilator is one thing, but it's the staff that we're dealing with here. Is there more expansion possible, or have we reached a max, at least where you work? I think, I think they, like, you know, if push comes to shove, we're going to do everything we can for our patients, right? So if that means the doctors, nurses, and respiratory therapists need to work 24 hours, they're, they're going to do that. Um, uh, so I think we're going to have to do what we have to do. But at some point, if the trajectory doesn't change, right, at some point we do reach a point where, no, you actually can't go beyond that. I know that during the initial pandemic planning, that was during the first and second wave, they were thinking that at most in the province they could probably do 400 ventilated beds. I think the more realistic number based on recent discussions is probably more around 320. And okay. we're, last time I checked, we were at 200 or, or just above 200. So at that trajectory, right, uh, yeah, we're, we're, in some, we're in some trouble. And like you said uh, in your opener there, uh, we don't know really what's going to happen, right? No. Uh, we don't know if, anyone's, if anything's really going to mitigate this or if maybe this plateaus at some point just with people's behaviors changing or the number of people who can get sick have already gotten sick. I don't, I don't think anyone really knows that. No, we, we don't, and we're all just watching and waiting to see some sort of plateau or slowing down, and, and we haven't seen it yet. You know, um, I, I hear from people all day who are really angry, really frustrated, and say, you know what, if you've chosen not to get vaccinated, you've chosen to get sick, you shouldn't get health care. Now, it, it, I understand the frustration, but it's not an argument we should or can make in this country, but I wonder what it's like, because we know over 90% of the patients in your ICU have COVID. We know that. Um, what's it like? I mean... Is there frustration yeah, because, you know what, you didn't have to be here. Yeah, of course there's frustration, but you, you don't go into healthcare unless you're there to help people, right? And people may make choices in their lives, but that's not on us to be judges, right? We're there to help them when they need us. And so uh, when I look at these unvaccinated people, uh, they deserve my care and our care just as much as anyone else. Um, I'll leave it up to the politicians and society to perhaps judge them or pressure them to to uh, perhaps see things other ways. The other thing I'll say in Alberta, which I think is very important, uh, a lot of the people who are in intensive care, uh, they're good people, right? It's not like they are, are people who um, were very vocal against vaccines. I think in many ways they're victims as well, right? They're victims of misinformation they're victims of of some of the fear campaigns that have been run and i I don't think we should forget that i think there's there's a sizable number of people who uh are are victims on two ends they're victims of all this stuff they've heard so they didn't get the vaccine and now they're victims of covid so i i do want people to remember that so yeah don't judge too harshly right i mean there's all kinds of different reasons that people right have made the choices they've made um I'm just wondering, what's it like, you know, when you go into work, is it, is it chaos? Is it, um, or in, in yeah, an ICU, these no, patients? It is, it is chaos. I mean, I was just at a intensive care meeting yesterday, and just some of the contingencies that they've come up with, right, to, to deal with this crisis. Um, like for the nurses and respiratory therapists, I feel especially bad for them because they're working all the time in that unit, right? For myself, I'm an intensive care doctor and a surgeon, so I'll do a week at a time in the ICU and then go back to surgery. But even for the doctors, they're talking about us like 
uh, you know, just doing a lot more hours uh, on the unit and having multiple people on the unit. And yeah, you can do that for a few weeks. You can do that for maybe even a few months. But to do that for 16 months or 18 months, uh, and a lot of these people have kids, a lot of these people have families, right? They're dealing with situations that everyone else has had to deal with during the pandemic, right? And Mm -hmm. at some point, it's it's just just a lot, right? And I I do hope that uh, Albertans recognize that. You know, I wrote that letter to that unvaccinated patient, and uh, I I received a lot of positive feedback, but I did receive some, like, what I would say is almost hate mail. Sure. (laughs) And and when you you hear things like that, and you look back over the year, and you're like, you know what, I'm just trying to advocate for people here, advocate for people's health, and I put in a lot of work over the last year and a half, just like everyone else has on that unit and throughout the province, and th- that always that always hurts a little bit. You know, Doc, we always hear about the ventilator, and there's all kinds of other people that talk about treatments and therapeutics. And I mean, have those evolved over the course of this pandemic? Do you have more weapons in your in your tool belt that you can go to to try and help people? Uh, there's a lot more medications, right, that are available now that probably weren't available during that first wave. So these would be monoclonal antibodies that can help support the immune system. But once once your oxygen levels are so severe that you need a ventilator, none of those things help, right? You, you need to be on life support. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we don't have anything in medicine just yet that that works as well as that does so i think without those medications it's possible there's a lot of people in hospital who who would need the ventilator and that's what the studies would show right that steroids and these monoclonal antibodies are preventing people from getting even more ill but honestly by the time you're seeing an intensive care doctor or nurse you're you're in a in a situation such a bad situation that none of that stuff is going to make a difference yeah, pretty desperate. Uh, doctor, I appreciate your time this morning, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, I think we all appreciate it, uh, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That is Dr. Rayan Chowdhury, who is an intensive care specialist uh, at the Royal Alec Hospital in Edmonton, giving us um, you know, uh, a bit of an insight as to what's going on in the ICU. And I think, you know what, that kind of message that we heard from Dr. Chowdhury saying, you know what, we, we've turned this into a fight, Right. We've turned this into uh, us versus them. Uh, And we all lose. We all lose when we play the us versus them game. All right. Going to switch gears here for a little bit. We talked um, earlier, well, yesterday, if you were listening yesterday, we had the discussion about um, clean drinking water on Canada's First Nations and how it's an election issue that all the parties agree on. Insofar as saying it's something we need to do something about. And uh, this is a long-standing agreement that political parties have. Going back many, many years, it's been something we've talked about in this country, but really not taken a lot of steps towards solving. In fact, we're still in a pretty desperate situation when it comes to um, boil water advisories and all the rest on First Nations in this country. So we were asking, well, why is that? You know, what is the situation? Why is this so hard? Has there been solutions proposed that haven't been adopted? And... um, I was contacted by Steve Rudy yesterday who said, yeah, yeah, there has. In fact, I was part of a panel that was formed a way back in 2006 to take a look at this very issue and advise Jim Prentice, who was at the time the minister in charge of this file in Ottawa, and say, this is what we need to do. Hasn't happened. 
Some of it has, some of it hasn't, but obviously we haven't taken as many steps forward as we need to. So uh, let's get a little deeper into that discussion. We're going to chat now with um, Dr. Steve Rudy, who is an internationally renowned researcher, educator, communicator, author, and professor at the University of Alberta. Dr. Rudy, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. And, and thank you for reaching out yesterday and saying, hey, yeah, I have some background on this that your listeners may find interesting. Uh, I appreciate that very much. So um, let's just go back to your involvement in this. It goes back to 2006, right, when you were part of a, a small committee that was brought together to try and study this very issue. That's correct. Uh, so in 2006, uh, the Conservatives had just been elected, and they inherited a report from the uh, Auditor General from the fall of 2005 uh, pointing out that there was no regulatory regime for safe drinking water at First Nations. And so uh, the minister at the time, Jim Prentice, uh, convened this panel. Uh, he appointed uh, uh, Dr. Harry Swain as chair, uh, who he had chaired the research advisory panel to the Walkerton Inquiry. Uh, myself, uh, I had been on the uh, that panel as well for the Walkerton Inquiry. And Grand Chief Stan Lutet, who was uh, Grand Chief for the area where Kaseshawan happened, which is another long story. So, what was you know what were your findings then? Like, what what? How did you go about assessing the situation? First of all, what did you look into and try and get a, a an understanding out of exactly where we stood back in two thousand six, mind you, in terms of clean drinking water? Well, ironically enough, that we were given a very short leash and very short timeline. Uh, we were uh, retained in uh, late May, uh, early June, and, and asked to report by September. Uh, we got our report in by October, but uh, we actually conducted 11 public hearings across Canada. I uh, had uh, substantial engagement from First Nations representatives, from uh, consultants, and uh, other people who knew about the subject. So uh, we put that together in a report. It was tabled in the House of Commons in uh, December 2006. Um, it took another five years for legislation to uh, uh, be developed from that, but ultimately it was in 2011, but uh, it didn't get passed until 2013. Okay, so let's talk about your findings. Uh, you know, you presented some solutions, some options to deal with this problem. What, 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 what were your findings? What did you say we could do to make this a better situation? Well, knowing that we've got limited time, the, the most important message that we gave and uh, testified several times before Senate committees and parliamentary committees, uh, water treatment uh, doesn't work unless you have qualified, uh, well-supported, dedicated operators. And, uh, you know, what the uh, program coming out of the various uh, versions of the Department of Indian Affairs, it's now Aboriginal Affairs, I believe, mm -hmm. um, they're good at handing out money uh, for building treatment plants, but uh, supporting uh, operators and, and the people that have to make it work has been a continuing problem. Yeah, you know, I mean, it seems like an obvious solution. If you're going to build the the equipment, the facilities, you need to make sure that there's people capable of running them in there. I mean, how how can such an obvious disconnect take place? I've been asking myself that question. I mean, as I say, every time I testified before one of these committees, I'd say, look, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, First Nations communities have very high unemployment. Yeah. Uh, here we're saying we need some trained, skilled people uh, to do a skilled job. Uh, can't we kind of solve two problems in one uh, uh, fell swoop? I think part of it is, and I don't understand fully the, uh, the limitations, but the mechanisms for funding that flow from the federal government to First Nations communities 
uh, seem to be very restricted when it comes to operating funds as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, providing capital. Well, you know what, you make, you make an interesting point because we, you, there's a lot of money spent on this. I mean, those water treatment plants cost a lot of money, and, and you're right, they're, they're, they've built them. Um, but well, now we're, now, exactly. I mean, there's, there's been billions spent on, billions. on uh, uh, spending, uh, you know, uh, frankly, there's a lot of First Nations communities that have uh, uh, far more sophisticated, better quality, newer water treatment plants than uh, equivalent-sized uh, non-First Nations communities. You know, and when we talk about the money, we know that, the, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, $8 billion, um, was just uh, issued in compensation because of the boil water advice. We, we are talking about billions and billions of dollars being spent to not really solve the problem here. Well, uh, that's uh, the op-ed that I referred to you to that got me back into thinking about this was on July 30th, uh, uh, the minister responsible announced that the feds had agreed to uh, settling a class action lawsuit for $8 billion, uh, $1.5 billion of which was going to be paid out in compensation to 142,000 residents who had uh, experienced boil water advisories. And the first question came to mind to me. I mean, that's an average of $10,000 a person. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a nice payment, uh, you know, coming two weeks before uh, calling an election. But what's that going to do to solve the safe drinking water problem? They have not been clear about how the rest of the funds are going to be spent. And, um, you know, directed the right way, uh, the problem certainly could be dealt with. But uh, I'm just not seeing a lot of indication that uh, it's there. And, and frankly, since publishing uh, that op-ed, I've heard zero from anybody uh, involved in the issue, uh, other than the discussion that you've had. Well, yeah, you know, and it's really interesting, because we talked yesterday about geography and, and some of the issues, and there are issues, there's no question about it, but we're in a position now where, you know, some infrastructure has been in, in place, um, there's talk about increasing more and things like that, but I mean... it the solution you're proposing is really quite simple. I mean, you're already spending billions of billions of dollars. If you put it in the area of giving them the infrastructure and the expertise and the training to, to use the infrastructure, a lot of these problems would go away. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, the fact is that, you know, we've known for more than a century how to uh, make drinking water safe from uh, uh, causing disease from like, microbial pathogens. And that's what well, water advisories are called for, is that uh, signals are come that uh, the water could be contaminated with microbial pathogens, which come from human waste and animal waste. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not uh, truly rocket science to uh, uh, solve that problem, uh, but it does require dedicated, uh, uh, competent, well-trained, and well-supported operators to do it. Yeah, doctor, I'm just taking a look. You you proposed this back in 2006. Um, you sent me uh, a PDF today showing that there's 400 plus boil water advisories in British Columbia. 15 years after this plan was proposed, and there's been so much talk about it over the years. How frustrating is it to know that everybody talks about it? Everybody says it's something that we should do, but nobody actually does it. Well, I mean, that's a really good point, and I need to point out that those 400, uh, that's in one health region in B.C., the interior health region, yeah. you know, Okanagan up to uh, uh, south of Prince George. Um, those are not First Nations. Those are, you know, regular communities. It's a problem with small communities of all kinds. It's not just First Nations. Um, frankly, Canadians take uh, drinking water uh, for granted, uh, we're willing to spend, uh, you know, dollars per bottle for, for bottle of water, which 
you know, uh, soft drink companies can take from the tap and treat and put in a bottle and sell to you for a couple of bucks. Um, you know, people will spend money on water, but they're not, I guess, informed enough or uh, supportive to make sure that their community systems are functional. So what questions should we be putting to our, our leaders, you know, in this final week of the campaign? I mean, they all talk about it, but they have for a long time with no action. So what do we need to demand of them as we head into the vote next week? Well, on this particular issue, they have to describe how are they going to go about actually uh, changing the course. I mean, the, the, the promises are all about reducing well water advisories. Yeah. Well, uh, that's an arbitrary thing. Uh, the well water advisories, in, in, in many cases, are called by the chief and council of the, of the First Nation themselves. Uh, so putting them on or taking them off is uh, not necessarily indicative of having solved the problem. I think another issue that I've heard a lot of confusion about that uh, it needs to be uh, explicit is the the feasibility of providing piped water to every uh, residence in the community. Yeah. I mean, I, I checked and, you know, there's something over 600,000 Alberta residents who are rural, which means, you know, they're either in uh, acreages or on farms. Um, they don't have pipe water. Uh, you know, they, they either have to have a well or they get uh, water delivered by truck. Um, and that's just an economic thing that, uh, you know, if you're located too far away from where the water treatment plant is, uh, building pipes out to all of those uh, residences isn't really feasible. Right. Um, so, you know, that shouldn't be confounded with this other issue. Thanks for listening uh, today. That, to hear uh, any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite sure podcast. Well if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. And it's well supported. I don't know why it's so difficult to provide that that support uh, with the dollars that we're talking about, but it just doesn't seem to happen. No, it hasn't. There's clearly something that doesn't follow through there. Uh, Dr. Rudy, I can't thank you enough for reaching out yesterday and following up with an interview today. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Steve Rudy, a researcher. And as you heard, um, he was on an advisory panel to Jim Prentice, who was the minister in charge of this back in 2006. And, uh, you know, and as he said, we, we've, we've spent the money on the infrastructure in many cases. We've built the water treatment plants, but we didn't follow it up with staff to do it. Um, now, uh, a lot of you saying on the text line, well, they didn't want to do it. You know, we, we did it. We had it in place, but they didn't follow through. I'm sure there's some instances of that, and there's some instances if we didn't provide the proper training. Who knows? Who knows? But, you know, I was reading another story where uh, a chief of Sutina was saying that, you know, they came in and they built the water treatment plant, and that's great, and we use it to, to um, supply the school so they have good, clean running water in the school, but they didn't build the infrastructure to run it to all the houses. And, you know, and Dr. Rudy was talking about that. That's another added cost. So it is not a simple solution, I don't think, but there are definitely solutions out there. And I think, unfortunately, as a country, to this point, we've taken a look at it as, we're going to talk about this, because on the surface, it's mind-boggling that in 2021, we have this many people living um, without access to clean water, but we do. Uh, And all the parties agree that that's not right, and it needs to be fixed, but what's the plan? Do we ever get the plan? Do we ever get the follow-through? Dr. Dina Hinshaw yesterday held a, uh, a virtual meeting with primary care docs in Calgary. And it was really interesting. She started her discussion by saying, hey, thanks for having me back. Thanks for still talking to me. She said, I've heard from so many of my clinical colleagues saying, what on earth are you doing? How did you make the decisions that you made? You know this is craziness. Um, and she said she's heard that from a lot of doctors. 
and she was talking about how we ended up in the mess that we're in right now with the ICU, and she was very explicit about how we got here. She's not uh, confused at all, and um, people say, yeah, well, you shut down contact tracing on and on. No, 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 no. It's because we went too fast, too far. I don't believe that that contact tracing change has had a huge impact on our trajectory. I think that trajectory was set when we removed all the public health restrictions at the beginning of uh, July. I think if we look at the experiences of all of the different provinces across the country, uh, those that have kept in um, some base level restrictions to manage the interactions and, and close contacts are the ones that are not seeing the significant impact. And those of us that removed them are the ones that saw the, the significant, very steep rise in some of these acute care impacts. Now, the reason I think this is so interesting is because it's a bit of a departure. Well, actually, it's a big departure from the way Dr. Hinshaw has played this pandemic. She's been straight down the middle and not getting into any of the discussions like this. Um, And she's been facing increasing calls, clearly, from her colleagues in the medical profession saying, what are you doing? Uh, And, of course, from the public, you know, I mean, resign Hinshaw trends on Twitter regularly now um, because she... uh, has not spoken out against um, what a lot of people say is a failed UCP policy uh, that got us into this mess. Um, But it's an interesting transition for her because at the beginning she was a hero, right? I mean, she was lauded. Everybody loved Dr. Henshaw, and it slowly but surely ended up to the point now where she gets all kinds of venom. And I think that's probably typical for all chief medical officers of health. It's an interesting study into who they are, what they are, what they're supposed to do, and what they're doing now. So to get some insight on exactly what a chief medical officer of health means and what we should expect from them, we have Patrick Fafar joining us, who is the Associate Director of Global Strategy Lab at York University and the University of Ottawa, and a Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Um, Patrick, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. You know, when we take a look at the Chief Medical Officer of Health, let's just talk about what that role traditionally has meant. What is, you know, what is the job description of a Chief Medical Officer of Health? Uh, It's an excellent question. The job description of the Chief Medical Officer of Health in most provinces is broadly similar. They are the chief public health uh, official, advisor to governments. In some provinces, the local medical officer of health have a reporting relationship to the chief medical officer in other provinces not. But they're styled, they're there to do several things. They're there to be an advisor to the government. They're there to be a spokesperson for the government in certain situations. They have, unlike almost any other public servant, they have independent regulatory power. So Dr. Hinshaw and her counterparts in other provinces have the authority under the Public Health Act to like shut a business down. Um, and basically they're the person who's there to protect or to uh, maximize public health to the extent possible. And typically, um, I think most people have gone through life, however old they are, not even knowing who the chief medical officer of health is because they don't have an impact on our daily lives. So the situation we're dealing with right now is a real departure from what they typically do and the role they typically play. Exactly. So the chief medical officer of health is a very old role. goes back to the 19th century. Um, but it's the assumption is that day in, day out, we're dealing with relatively small-scale stuff. So, for example, under the Public Health Act, the chief medical officer has the authority to shut down a business, for example, because there's an infectious disease outbreak yeah. in, a, in a local business. What's extraordinary is that uh, nobody anticipated when we designed the role uh, something quite this big, quite this large, 
quite this extensive, and it's it's had the the pandemic has had the effect of stretching and putting putting the role under a whole lot of tension, and it's playing itself out in different ways in different parts of the country. And you know what I think? You know, their job has always been one where they've managed to maintain political neutrality because it hasn't been required, but that too has changed because. Every decision that a government has made surrounding this pandemic has been seen through a political lens, and whether they like it or not, they're part of that process. Exactly. But here it's important to make a couple of points. First, uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health is very unusual among public servants. There is almost no other public servant working for the provincial government who has quite this profile, Normally, we let the minister or the premier speak for the government. And two, there are very few public servants who have the independent regulatory authority that the chief medical officer of health does. Now, those two features are on purpose, but it means that in something this big and this large, all of a sudden, this person who, as you say, is relatively unknown, is in in the media every day. And in the case of Alberta, the government of Alberta uh, made the problem bigger, if you will, by making two choices. One, by putting Dr. Hinshaw front and center, um, and the politicians have been relatively uh, less prominent. Uh, so the public gets this idea that somehow she's making the decisions. And two, the government of Alberta decided to, to implement a lot of its actions using the regulatory authority of Dr. Hinshaw, as opposed to saying, no, we're going to do it this other way, and we're, and we're going to make it clear that it's our decision and, and we're implementing it. So those two things, using her authority under the Act and making her this chief spokesperson, means that the public thinks, all right, she must be responsible for all of this. And in fact, she's not. Right. And she, up until a point, she was very explicit on that. She said, my job is an advisor. I don't make the decisions. And I always said, good, you shouldn't. The elected officials are there, elected by us, to make these decisions based on the advice they get from all different corners of the province. So you're doing the job the way that it should be. We've now pivoted to a realm, and I think you're right because the government said, this is Dr. Hinshaw's plan in Alberta. And the initial reaction as things started to get a little out of hand here as we headed through August is, Dr. Hinshaw needs to resign. She needs to push back. She needs to speak out. That again would be a huge departure from the role of a chief medical officer of health, wouldn't it? Well, yes and no. So two points. On your first point, you're absolutely right that uh, the Minister of Health, Mr. Chandru, went out of his way to say these choices were on, and the premiers did the same thing, these decisions were made on the advice of Dr. Hinshaw. Now, I spent a lot of years in government. I study how government works. I, it's, it's barely credible that a decision of this magnitude would be made solely on the basis of the advice of one official, however uh, senior and important she might be. So that was a bit disingenuous, to say the least. Um, but then second, you put Dr. Inch on a very tough spot because, of course, she's now having to be the, the front person, the spokesperson, for very controversial decisions. And her, as you pointed out in your intro, her public health and medical colleagues got quite upset. But there's one thing that's important to remember. The role was always intended to have a degree of autonomy and independence because from the public's perspective, oh, right, there's this autonomous doctor person who's advising the government or in safe hands because it's not those politicians making the choices. Uh, at least they're being advised by this, this public health expert. And so the role was always intended to have some degree of autonomy from the elected, from the politicians. So that's by design. 
but it gets really complicated during a pandemic because, as you say, the decisions are so vast, yeah. of such big implications. It's, it puts the chief medical officer, not, and not just Dr. Inshaw, but her counterparts across the country. The moment the government makes what turns out to be bad choices, they're put in this really difficult spot. Uh, and her, her uh, announcement yesterday was significant because um, she finally felt compelled to say what everybody knows to be true, which was that the, the decisions were advised. Um, you know, we're talking about Dr. Hinshaw, but I don't think, I, I can't think of one chief medical officer of health who hasn't found themselves in the firing line at one point or another throughout this in our country. I mean, they were heroes for a while, then they were villains for a while, and they bounced back and forth. Um, do we need to rethink the role of chief medical officers of health? I mean, we've got people who I don't think Dr. Hinshaw ever thought she would be giving a news conference, let alone a news conference every single day for months on end. You know, there's different skills and attributes that maybe we should be considering for this role. You're right. But I think Dr. Hinshaw had a, has given press conferences in the past, so that's not news. What is new is, as you say, doing it every day. Yeah, um, but I don't think it's about the skills or the personality or the charisma of the chief medical officer. I think it's more about about the institutional design. And I'm 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 increasingly convinced that in the face of pandemics, and there will be another one, we need to rethink the role. But one thing that's very important is that how the government manages the role is important. In a lot of other provinces, yes, they've been in the limelight, but they were never asked by their government to to sell. Uh, policies in quite the same way Dr. Hinshaw was, or they weren't asked to sell policies that, that were as out of sync with public health advice. And so hers is a particularly difficult situation. But yes, going forward, we'll probably have to rethink the role and ask, can the same person be an advisor, be a spokesperson, be a critic? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And we might need to separate the role in various ways. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion. We're all learning as we go here. I really appreciate your time, Patrick. Thank you so much. Good discussion. You're very welcome. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. That is Patrick Fafard, an assistant uh, associate director at the Global Strategy Lab at York uh, and the University of Ottawa and a professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. And I think, you know, there's a lot of really good points there in in terms of we we put these people in, in charge of public health response and things like that. And this circumstance... I think we can all fully grasp, is extremely extraordinary. Nobody saw this coming. Um, And I I do not envy Dr. Hinshaw for a moment. I think, you know, she had an idea of what the job was going to be when she got into it, and it ended up being something completely and utterly different. Uh, And we can argue, and and I'm sure we will before we're done today, as to whether or not she's done the right thing. You know, has she has she fulfilled the role the way she should have, or should she have pushed back? Maybe she agreed. I don't know. We don't know. Um, But the announcement that she made yesterday, you know, saying, in my opinion, uh, the reason is clear why we're in the trouble that we're in is uh, because we removed restrictions. Look at the other jurisdictions that didn't, and they're in far better position than we are. Seems relatively straightforward. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. (laughs) 